Welcome to An Amazingly Ordinary Life, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of special needs. I'm Sherry Tharp, an autism mom and your host. Join me each week as we share our lives, build community, and redefine normal. This is An Amazingly Ordinary Life, episode number seven. Today, I'll be talking with Leslie Moon, a BCBA therapist who saw a need in the autism community and created a program to fill in the gaps. Leslie, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and share with us today. It's my pleasure. So why don't we start with giving you a chance to introduce yourself and letting us know what it is that you do. My name is Leslie Moon, and I am a board-certified behavior analyst. I work for a group called Autism Outreach Club Ed. We're outside the Washington, D.C. area. I work primarily with the population that's diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, although I work with other disabilities as well. And I work more in a consultative fashion, just overseeing programs for kids based on what their needs are, setting them up, writing behavior plans, that sort of thing. How long have you been doing this? Forever. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) A very long time. It's been over 20 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you obviously like what you do. I love it. I love it. How did you get started in this? So I kind of fell into it. I had been an at-home mom. I had just finished my undergrad and had gone to a job fair at the college. And the local school system was hiring. They were setting up what was called at the time a preschool autism pilot program, where they were kind of testing out this behavior analysis in the school system. And so they were hiring people to kind of implement that. And I just happened to walk by the table and stopped to talk to the person, and then the rest is history. So I started off working for the school system, and then the person who actually hired me, we worked for the school system in the, in the pilot program for about three years. And then we went off and branched off on our own and started Autism Outreach. We felt like the school system, because it was a pilot, it was only accepting 10 children, and that so many other kids could benefit from this. The parameters were very, the kids had to be between the ages of like two and a half and four. And there were just all these parameters because it was a pilot. And so we had to turn a lot of kids away. And so we just felt like there was this whole other population out there that could be serviced. And so we decided to branch out on our own. How did you start with going off on your own? What did that entail? It was a night over a few glasses of wine where we decided that we could make this happen you and your listeners are in the area of special needs. So, you know, school systems aren't always the best deliverers of those services. So it's one of those things where we just started talking about, you know, there's no reason why we couldn't do this ourselves and, you know, help all these other kids and we could do it correctly because we were also bound by the parameters and the rules of the school system. And it was interesting because the school system did not want to have this program. It was formed by a group of parents, very savvy parents who kind of forced the school system's hand. So it was just a sort of not a great setup or experience. So we were like, you know, we can do this on our own. We can service other children. And so I left first the school system because I was not a contracted employee. It was very easy for us to start getting kids because we had this group of kids who had been turned away by the pilot program to begin with. So they were paying out of pocket quite often for us to consult anyway on the side. So we just started building a business that way. It was not difficult, unfortunately and fortunately, I guess. 
Yeah, exactly. It's great that you were able to have built-in client base, but then again, it's because school wasn't quite meeting those needs. Right, and the rates of autism just have continuously risen and risen. I mean, it's, gosh, I can't even remember what they were when I just got into the field, but now it's like one in 59 kids. Yeah. So there's that part too, where it's just been, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, we've never been short of clients. Right. My son was diagnosed with autism about 17 years ago. At that point, the rate was one in 500. And it's just skyrocketed since then. Yes. So for those who don't know, or maybe this is a new term for them, can you explain exactly what behavioral analysis is? It's a big umbrella of a lot of different things, but basically what we do is we break down behavior and teach it in a very systematic way. And behavior can be anything. It can be language, which we call verbal behavior. It can be behaviors, what we think of as behaviors, where kids maybe have aggression or other types of behaviors like that. And it can be things like social skills. So we just look at what each child, what they need, and then we break down what we're trying to teach them systematically, as systematically as what they need, and work with them on that. So if we have a two-year-old who's newly diagnosed, we're going to be looking at a lot of language and communication. And we might be working on sign language, or we might be working on a picture exchange system, or we might be teaching them, you know, maybe they're verbal, and we're just shaping their actual language. And then we also do a lot of behavior planning. So we do get kids who are aggressive and do have acting out behaviors, if you will. And then we go in and we train the families on how to implement the plan and how to not reinforce the behavior and work with them that way. We look at everything as a behavior. The whole thing is very much based on the work of Skinner, which is pretty basic. So Skinner, he looked at behavior at its most basic level. He looked at what happened right before the behavior, what the actual behavior was, and then what was reinforcing the behavior. And so he is well known for his work with rats and pigeons and animals in training them to like push a button to get food and things like that. And so we look at behavior the same way when we are working with kids or teaching kids and reinforcement is a huge crux of ABA. We really look at what we're reinforcing and it's a very important part of the model and reinforcement is very important really for all of us. You know, you're only going to work so long without a paycheck, no matter how much you love your job. We all work for reinforcement. I love that you take into account the family and the parents and that you said you train them to help them reinforce this behavior and to keep it going because there's so many times that you go in to a therapy or any place that you're going to take your kids and a lot of times they work with a child but then you're left in the dark after that and there's no way to continue that at home. Yeah, I'm sure. It's really interesting to hear about it actually from a parent perspective who's not going through a service like ours because the family training is such an important component and I just don't get how you can even function that way. That's so hard. And I feel like parents, you know, you're not behavior analysts and a lot of parents are not teachers and you just are inadvertently reinforcing things, maybe giving something attention when attention is super reinforcing. And just, you know, a lot of it's as simple as working with a parent saying, just ignore it. Even though that goes against everything that a parent wants to do. Yes. You know, but ignoring things a lot of time is like the hugest tip out there. So. Yes, I couldn't agree more. 
It's easier said than done. But. I know. And I say that too. Like when you have to live with it 24 seven and parents tell me that and I'm like, I get it. Like, I don't get it, but I get it. And I respect that. It's got to be hard to ignore some things. Yes, it is. So you really tailor all the services and the whole program specifically to each child, it sounds like. Yes. Yep. Everything's very individualized. How long does it take when you have a new child come in? How long does it take to look at the child's needs and figure out, okay, this is how we're going to go. This is the program we're going to use with this child. At this point, it's interesting. It doesn't take very long at all. Um, You've been doing it so long. I can pretty much lay eyes on a child pretty quickly and be like, okay, I know where to start now for details and things like that. I have to obviously get to know the child better. But I can look at a two-year-old who's nonverbal and say, okay, well, we need to start with, you know, teaching this child how to request and get their wants and needs met and that kind of thing. It's much easier now. Right. So I have to ask you because I do this having a child with autism. So when you're out shopping or you're just out in public, do you see a child and you go, oh, they're on yep. the spectrum? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I feel like it's that whole, when you yeah. own a red van, you see red vans everywhere. So yes. <laughs> totally. And I would say that there's not many people like me who don't have a member of their family or a close friend with a kiddo on the spectrum. Yeah, which is sad because yeah. there's so many kids and there's such a lack of services. There's just yep. too many kids to be able to fit into the programs and services that are available and the therapies that are available. Everything's just overloaded. Yeah, it is. And there's a high rate of burnout in this field too. So where I am, I'm more of a consultative. So I come in and I assess and then I set up the program and then I train people how to implement the program on the day-to-day basis. But at that level, there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of turnover, which also kind of complicates it in terms of availability of services. So how long has Autism Outreach specifically been in business? We incorporated July of 1999. I'm not good at math. 21 years. 21 years. years. How many employees do you have? So we have three BCBAs, which is my Mm -hmm. level, Mm -hmm. and then a bunch of part-time employees that carry out the programming. I'll say maybe like 30. Yeah, so you've got a full house there. Mm -hmm. They're part-time, so they like a lot of them are students. Mm-hmm. who are going to go into special ed. You know, this is a job where they can work six or eight hours a week if they want or 20 hours a week if they want. And they can totally work it around their school schedule. We get teachers who are doing this part-time after school for a couple days a week to earn extra money. So it's a super flexible sort of position. And it's probably a great way for those students to kind of dip their toes into that world and yes. get started. Yep. And we get a fair share that do it for a day or two and are like, no. Well, you have to be committed to do this for a living. (laughs) It's a whole different level of involvement. Yeah. So how many kids come through your program every day or every week? We have at any point, I'd say on some level, probably about 100 kids currently receiving services. Okay. So we have kids that come in every day, all day. We do in-home as well, but that has kind of stopped now because of the COVID, but we'll get back to that at some point. And in-home is a huge piece of it because kids act differently at home than they do in oh, a yeah. clinical setting. But right now we have kids that come all day, every day. We have kids that we, you know, we might see them once a week or I do a social group. So we have kids that just come to the social group once a week. We have kids where we just provide IEP support at this point because they're 
in gen ed all day and they just need some IEP help. So it, it just varies what the kids are getting. I have a son who got really violent and aggressive when he was young. Have you ever had kids come through there that you haven't been able to help with that kind of behavior? We have. There have been a few cases and we are very transparent about that because Mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, if a kid is in crisis, we're not your answer. So we will either refer out or if it's really like a kiddo in crisis, we may look at like an inpatient situation and then support the family when they get home with the behavior plan and help them kind of translate that into everyday life and that kind of thing. But we don't do meds, you know, we're not doctors. And so quite often in a situation like that, you have a kid that may need some medication. You know, it just depends. I mean, sometimes we see that too with some of our kids that are kind of starting to go through adolescence. We start to see some of those hormones and just the growth and maybe the meds that were working before are not working now. And, you know, whatever it is, there are things that are kind of out of our realm of ability. I recently just had a case where the kiddo, I worked with him since he was three and he's now 18 and he got really big. (laughs) He used to be big when he was three. (laughs) So suddenly I'm like, I can't do anything out of control. He gets really mad. And we can't physically, it's dangerous. And so his parents, his mom signed him up at Kennedy Krieger, which is in Baltimore and is sort of the guru of, at least in our area of autism and treatment and applied behavior analysis. And he did a, it wasn't inpatient, but it was like a daily session there where they looked at the behavior and they set up a behavior plan. And I was a part of that. But they were a little more, you know, able to deal with him clinically than we could. Mm-hmm. It's nice, though, that the parents still had you there, a familiar yep. face and somebody who actually knew their son and knew the behaviors. Right. That's always the worst part is going into a situation where you don't know everybody and you don't know how they're going to treat your child. Right. So with the kids you see, do you tend to get them just after a diagnosis at a young age? Do you have just a broad range of kids who first start the program? We have a broad range. Our favorite is when we get them when they've just been diagnosed and doctors are diagnosing younger and younger now. Mm-hmm. When I was in the field, you would often hear, it was a very common story, and maybe you know this story, where it was often the mom who was like, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's not right. And the doctors and husband and in-laws would all say, it's your first, it's a boy, they develop a little more slowly, blah, blah, blah. And then at four years old, all of a sudden, the kiddo gets an autism diagnosis. Yeah. And she's like, I knew I was right, I knew something was wrong. And Now at 18 months, the pediatricians have like markers that they're supposed to look for, which is really nice. I'm sure it's very scary for parents, but when we get a kiddo who's under two, the odds that they're going to be, I mean, no one's completely recovered, but that they can be to a point where they can operate in a general education setting by kindergarten are greatly, greatly increased. If they do like a full program, like a full early intervention program. That early intervention is so critical. My son actually was able to get a preliminary diagnosis a month before he turned two. And the therapist at the time, the diagnostician, she did tell me, now this isn't official diagnosis because they won't give you an official one until he's three. But he started therapy a month before he turned two. And I think that made a huge difference in what he was able to accomplish and what he was able to do later on in life. And I credit you a lot with that because it's got to be hard where you're like, okay, I want to know this, but I don't want to know this. Exactly. 
Yeah. And then there's that group of parents who the, I don't want to know this wins out. And you're just like, Oh, come on. Like, yes. <laughs> if he doesn't have it and we do this, it'll be okay. And if he does have it and we do this, then your odds are going to be better. Exactly. You're a step ahead. It's that double-edged sword that you don't want your kid to have a label because that means there's something quote unquote wrong with them. But right. without that label, you can't start services or get help or anything. So you definitely right. want them to be successful and whatever that takes, if that means getting therapy or whatever. But yeah, sometimes you just got to bite the bullet and do it. Yeah. Is there any one particular service therapy program that you use that seems to have the most success with these kids? Our group does ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis. As far as I know, it's the only scientifically proven methodology that helps kids on the spectrum. And it is, for the most part, covered by most insurances, which is new. When I first started, insurance was not covering this at all. I'd say in the last maybe, let's say, eight years or so, insurance has been covering ABA. And in fact, you have to have a diagnosis of autism to get insurance to cover ABA. So, which is also frustrating because there's a group of kids with many other diagnoses who would benefit from ABA and insurance won't cover it without that autism diagnosis. I'm glad you brought up the whole insurance aspect of it because I was going to ask about that. That was one of the things we really struggled with when Logan was young. We couldn't afford insurance. You know, we didn't have any out-of-pocket money and speech therapy was $200 an hour. So I was going to ask if ABA was typically covered so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And it is now, yes. And we good. still have to fight for it. And, I, you know, it's still insurance is insurance, and it's frustrating at times. Is it typically covered by Medicare as well? It is. Our group does not, unfortunately, accept Medicare clients because they ask us to negotiate the rates so low that oh. we can't afford to do that. But, yeah. Which is sad. Yeah. Again, in my experience, it's been 17 years since my son was diagnosed, ABA was this brand new kind of hot therapy that was still a little bit controversial and it wasn't available anywhere in my area. It was, I would have to go to like the East Coast to get trained to come home and do it myself with my son. Right. And and now it just seems like the gold standard. That's what you're going to get. And I am so, so glad to know that I see it everywhere and talk to people that it's so widely available that I'm just so grateful that there are kids who are benefiting from this now instead of it being just some, you know, pipe dream that you'll never be able to afford. Yeah. And it is. I mean, the out-of-pocket for families who don't have coverage is unaffordable. You know, it was very controversial, which was part of why we had so much trouble in the school system 20-something years ago. Because when it started and how it evolved was, again, if we go back to Skinner, the guy that started using ABA on kids with autism did use aversives. And he did use things like, you know, they would give kids a little slap if they got an answer wrong or do something like that. I mean, this was back in the mid-70s, I guess, when the studies were being done. And so the people that were around at that time, like the speech therapists and the teachers and everything in the schools, hated it and did not agree with it because they remembered where it started. But it has evolved. (laughs) Yes, it has. We don't do that anymore. Thankfully. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting because you'll occasionally still find that person who's like, oh, ABA is bad and, you know. Like, well, no, it's evolved. (laughs) It's not the same. Yeah. So I feel like that's one of the 
biggest obstacles for parents in trying to get their kids help is the whole insurance issue. And if they don't have insurance coming up with money for services, are there things that you could recommend for parents to do at home with their kids, either while they're waiting for services or until they can afford services? I think, you know, one thing that I say to parents a lot, which sometimes is hard to hear, is spend the college money now. So if you have any kind of college fund set up or grandparents have started a college fund or anything like that, spend it now. Like, do what you can now and pay out of pocket. And I would say, you know, really take a look at budget and what you can possibly do. And then something that I've had parents do is hire me to come consult and train them on how to run the programs Mm. so that at least they have that happening. Yeah. Which is kind of how they used to do it before. Right. In the day, you know, like what you're talking about where you'd have to fly somewhere and get trained, but now you don't have to fly anywhere to get trained. You know, it is everywhere and you can get a consultant to come in and just see if you could scrape together that, you know, whatever it is, it's probably be a couple thousand dollars to get somebody to come in, assess your kids, set up a program and train you, and then try to be able to continue at least that ongoing support monthly. I feel like that can be doable for a lot of parents. That's such great advice about the spending that college money now. Because you have these dreams of, okay, my kid's going to get through school, they're going to graduate, they're going to go on and have this great career. But if they don't get that help when they're younger and they don't get that support and the services they need, they may not be able to be successful at college. They may have trouble just getting through high school. That's right. So that's really, really good advice. It's hard to hear though. It is. It is. Because again, that's admitting that your dreams for a child aren't going to look the same as you thought they were going to. And I think autism is, it's a weird animal because I hope I say this correctly, but if you have a kiddo who is born with Down syndrome, you know right away that your kid has Down syndrome. So you're going through that grieving, that that, the worries, the whole thing that you go through, but you go through it when they're newborn and then you come to terms with it somehow, you know, it's probably an ongoing process. But with autism, you know, I think for a lot of parents whose kids are diagnosed, it's sort of shocking because there just was no physical manifestation. And so that makes it difficult also. It does. um, In terms of spending the college money now. Yeah. There's a little bit of a catch up with that to where if your child is born normal or neurotypical and is progressing okay, but then kind of has that regression. There's a lot of a lot of things that you see your kids doing that you can come up with excuses for. You can explain it away. And so it really takes a long time, I think, to get on board with that whole diagnosis and what that means. And so it is a lot longer of a process, I believe, to that accepting the things aren't going to look the way you thought they were. And I I would even venture to say that our parents, especially the ones that bring their kids in at the age of two or younger, go through it twice, or many of them do, because I think they come in and they're like, okay, we're going to do 30 hours a week of ABA, you know, and my kid's going to go to kindergarten and be in gen ed. And then for some parents that does happen, but there's another group of parents where you can see the franticness happening as the child approaches the age of five, where they realize that, well my kid might not be in gen ed. And then there's, they kind of go through the whole grieving process over again. Right. That can be tough. Because there is that whole 
population of kids who aren't going to, like you said, be able to be in gen ed. They may not be as high functioning or able to interact with everybody at the level that some of these other kids can. And you don't always know what you're getting into. It's not, there's not a way to always predict how well they're going to react to services or how well those services are actually going to help until you've been in it for a while. I mean, it's not black or white. There's definitely a huge group of kids who are in a gray area who can be in general ed for part of the day, right. but not for the whole day. Or maybe they need to be pulled out for reading comprehension, but they they can do math and with their gen ed peers. So, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, school systems, they're not the best, but they've come a long way. <laughs> yes, they have. So tell me, in all these years that you've been doing this, what is the most frustrating part of your job? I would say it would be the group of parents who do not follow through with what you're asking them to do continuously. And that's different from the group who is trying and then keeps wanting help and they're really trying, but there's another group who's just sort of says, here, fix my kid. Yes. Here's my kid, fix my kid. And they're not willing to do any, anything on their end to make that happen. And then, you know, you kind of get the brunt of the frustration when their kid is not fixed. Right. I would say that's the most frustrating part. I can completely see how that would be frustrating. And it's like even the gen ed kids and the neurotypical kids, you'll find parents like that. They send their kid off to school and they expect the teachers to, you're going to teach my child everything they need to know. And that's enough. I don't, I won't need to do anything else. Yes. I just, I have to say, if you are one of those parents out there who thinks that because the professionals know what they're doing and they'll be able to do it all, you are completely wrong. And without that consistency and everything backed up and reinforced at home and going over everything over and over and over again, your child is not going to make the progress that you're hoping to see. Right. So one last question before we go, for those parents who are just starting out in the journey with a new diagnosis or waiting on a diagnosis, or even those who have been at it for a couple of years, but are maybe feeling lost, what kind of advice or encouragement would you give to those families and those parents? I think my biggest recommendation would be to talk to other parents. Seek out people who are going through what you're going through. Like, I can help, but I don't know what you're going through. I am not walking in your shoes. I can be there to support and to teach and to train, but you need to go and talk to people who are walking in your shoes and really know the day-to-day struggles and what it means to take your kid to the grocery store and have them melt down and everybody's staring at you. And all of those things, again, I can listen and I can empathize, but I think it's most helpful to seek out people who really get it, like really get it. And I think other parents are a wonderful resource. I mean, sometimes I'm like, no, don't listen to that advice. But over, <laughs> for the most part, I think parents are just, just a, it's a wonderful resource. And I do think there's just some people who hesitate. You know, they don't want to air their dirty laundry or go out there and be emotional and tell their feelings to strangers. But I would argue that it will really help. And that's, great advice. That's actually why this podcast was started because I've always been of the belief that 
everybody's going through the same things you are, but somebody has to step forward and be the one to say, this is what's actually going on. And then other people will come forward and go, oh, I know what you're talking about. Me too. And so while this is great, having a podcast where we can talk to the families, it's still not the same as one-on-one, face-to-face, somebody who's local that you can call on all the time. So I would agree with you. Definitely reach out to those who are local to you and are in the same boat as you. Now with Facebook and social media and everything, it's so easy to find people who are dealing with what you're dealing with. Yes. Find a support group because they are out there. Yep. Okay. Well, Leslie, it was so great to meet you. Thank you for giving us this insight into ABA therapy and what it is that you do. Thank you. It was great. It was great talking to you. Well, and we appreciate everybody like you and all of your employees who are out there doing what they can to help our kiddos. Well, thank you. We love it. It is definitely a labor of love. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode at amazinglyordinarylife.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you left a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. As always, I would love to hear your story. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact me at my website or at amazinglyordinary at yahoo.com. And don't miss next week's episode where I'll be talking with Mindy Dykstra, a mom who is homeschooling six kids who all have varying degrees of dyslexia. I hope you'll join me then.